folks, welcome to Church Home and our third message in the Image of God series. If you haven't listened to the first two, be sure to check them out. The part one was explaining what the image of God is. Part two was talking about what has gone wrong in terms of honoring the image of God in other people. And today's message, part three, is about how we redeem the image of God, how we honor the image of God when things have gone so terribly wrong in so many ways. I'm Dr. Jamar Tisby, and once again, it is my joy, my pleasure, my privilege to join you today and bring you this message from God's Word. As we get started, I am going to tell you about my storied, remarkable career as a basketball player. Started in fifth grade, ended in fifth grade. Uh, you probably can't tell on screen, but I am a towering five foot four inches, and so I'm absolutely built for basketball. Actually, not just joking, but I wanted to join the team in fifth grade. And if I tell you I was the last one off the bench, that's actually kind of inflating what I did. I actually never played in a game, so I was not the last one off the bench. I was the last one on the bench, and I stayed on the bench. But that's Okay, my therapist is helping me work through that. We're, we're gonna be just fine. As a fifth grade basketball player though, that actually became the occasion for one of my earliest memories of race and racism. So we were at this private Catholic school and we were in this working class town north of Chicago. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. What I remember in elementary and middle school was we would have fundraisers all the time. You know, those ones where you go out and you sell people candy bars or tubs of popcorn or a bunch of stuff they don't need and you compete with the other kids about who can sell the most. What I didn't realize was like that was the lifeline for our school. We had to have all these fundraisers just to keep the doors open. And what that also meant was that our facilities weren't the best. And so on this basketball team, we had a gym, but the floor was like all warped because we had leaks in the roof. It was an old floor that had been waxed a bunch of times. There were all these divots and grooves and holes in the floor. And it was like a running joke that whenever you bounce the basketball, it was like 50-50, whether it would come straight back up or just jut off in some other direction. We didn't have locker rooms. We were changed in this like glorified custodial office, but it's all we knew. And so we didn't think it was a big deal until we started traveling to other schools for games. So we would go to these other schools in the area that were in much wealthier towns and suburbs. And I remember walking into this one school's gym and I literally stopped in my tracks and just jaw open, looking around. I couldn't believe my eyes. It, 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 in my memory, the, the gym fairly sparkled because it was so new, it was so shiny, it was so bright. They had rubber floors for a basketball court. I didn't know you could have a basketball court with a rubber floor. I'd never seen it before. They had beautiful logos stenciled on the wall. They had something else that blew my mind. They had stands. In, on, in the gym so like people could watch the game in actual stands as it was being played. And I remember walking into that school and thinking that the only difference between this school and their facilities and our school was that the, the majority of kids in this school that we were visiting were white and the majority of kids at my school were black and brown folks. And I remember asking my question, even at 10 or 11 years old, there was this question that came to mind, why them and not us? 
Why them and not us? Why do they get these stunning, glowing facilities? Why do we have to change in a custodial office? Why do they get stands in the gym? Why do we have to do without and they have so much? And that was one instance when I started to realize the way race and racism and injustice can affect us in all kinds of ways. What was so interesting is in that moment, my first reaction was to ask a question. When we're faced with some sort of confusing situation, even an injustice, uh, a lot of times we ask questions and that's actually biblical. So I want us to look at Genesis chapter three, verses eight and nine. We've been in Genesis in this whole series and I wanna continue that. And to set the context, um, Genesis chapter one and two, God creates the world. He look, God looks at the world and behold, it's very good. God creates humankind in God's image, in God's likeness. And it's the crown of God's creation. It's this beautiful Eden, this perfect garden, but it doesn't last long. Adam and Eve are tempted. They, they, they violate uh, God's commands. And this is where we catch up to them in Genesis three. It reads this way. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Where are you? In the Bible, the first thing that happens after the rebellion of Adam and Eve is God asks them a question. Where are you? Actually, the first thing that happens is God comes looking for them. <laughs> this is, you don't want to get me going, but, 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 but there's, a, there's an incredible reality here that even when we think we have failed, even when we think we have let down God or we've let down other people, even when our reaction is to hide in shame and to curl up in a little ball and want to be invisible, guess what? God comes after you. God goes looking for you. So after God goes looking for Adam and Eve, he asks them this question, where are you? And that's what I wanna to talk to you about today is this theme of questions that call for truth. Questions that call for truth. That's what God was doing in the garden. God, it's not like God didn't actually know where they were. <laughs> God knows everything. God knew exactly where they were. God wasn't asking about their location. God was asking about relation. When you ask that question, where are you? It's not about location, it's about relation. What God wanted Adam and Eve to know was that their rebellion had ruptured a relationship, had ruptured the relationship between them and God, had even ruptured the relationship between human beings and one another. And in order to reconcile, in order to, 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 to get back into right relationship, what was required was a question that called for truth. Brothers and sisters, we're talking about the image of God, and I'm just being transparent with you. I want everybody who listens to this message to become a soldier in the army of justice. I don't know. I, 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 I use that sort of militant message because I, we gotta know how serious this is. We gotta know how serious injustice is. Racism kills people. 
Sexism diminishes the quality of life. It traumatizes real people. Classism limits the opportunities of, of flourishing and enjoyment in life, and it affects real people, other image bearers, other people who hold the image and likeness of God. And there are real forces, people, and structures that are pushing back against every effort to value the dignity and humanity in all people. It is a battle day in and day out. And I know this is gonna maybe sound overblown a little bit, but I think it's true and, and, and trust and believe I would be happy to be wrong, but I think we're living in the civil rights movement of our day. I think that the same way that, that, that we now look back at the movement of the 50s and the 60s, we're one day gonna look back at the 2010s and 2020s as a time that, 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 that was, that was uh, ripe for possibility, ripe for change, ripe for growth, ripe for justice. But as we look back at that movement 50, 60 years ago, so often the people who claimed the name of Christ, it's not that they were always the ones burning crosses or wearing white sheets and, and hoods. So often what characterized the people who claimed the name of Christ in the civil rights movement was not action but inaction, was not action but apathy was not action but ignorance. And so as we talk about honoring the image of God in all people, we gotta get involved in the struggle. And, 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 and this is actually, I, I had to rework this message completely because there's a part of me that, that, that wants to answer the question I get most frequently whenever I talk about justice, whenever I talk about racial justice. And that question is this, what do we do? It's a practical question. It says, I recognize there's a problem. I want to get involved. Tell me how. Where do I start? I want to give you that message, but, but, but there's something that comes before that. By the way, if you want to get that message, I wrote a whole book about it, How to Fight Racism. It's there, but it, I think there's something that comes before that. As I'm sort of searching my heart about why I do this racial justice work, why I think it's important for all of us to, to be advocates for justice in various ways, it goes back to the questions. It goes back to questions that call for truth. And the reality is truth itself is under attack. I mean, think about it. We, we, in the United States, we've got a portion of the population that believes that the 2020 presidential election was fraudulent. That, 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 that it, it, it was illegitimate. And we've got a portion that says, you know, it, it, was, it was legal, it's legitimate. We've got a portion of the population in a global pandemic that says that, that things like masks and, and vaccines are a, a, a plot by the government to take more control of our day-to-day -day lives, that they're not effective. And we've got a portion of the population that says, no, believe the science. These things can mitigate the effects of a virus that has already caused hundreds of thousands of people to lose their lives. Right now, we've got a portion of the population that says, we don't need to talk about race and racism. That makes people feel bad. And they're going to great lengths. They're even coming up with lists of books to ban in schools. 
And we've got a portion of the population that says, oh no, actually we need to learn more about this, not less. We can't even agree on basic facts right now. And so it's more imperative than ever to ask questions that call for truth. So for the rest of our time, I wanna talk about three questions that call for truth. And a bonus, because I like you. But three questions that call for truth. And the first question that calls for truth is, are you curious? Are you curious? I say that because I think what's critical in this justice work, which is really a way of honoring the image of God, of honoring the dignity of all people, is to cultivate a mindset and even a heart set of curiosity. Curiosity about other people and cultures. Uh, I'm so thankful that I grew up in an environment with a lot of Spanish speakers. We had, my, my, my friend group included folks from Mexico and Honduras and Puerto Rico and all of these places and many of them spoke Spanish as well as English and that always sparked a curiosity in me. Like what, what does that word mean? How do you say this in a different language? I was always so jealous because I could only speak one language but I just grew up thinking like diversity was awesome and that different people and cultures and foods and dances and dress, that was part of regular normal life and it was good. And I think there's something about that that honors the image of God, but we've got so many people who look at what's different as something that's threatening, as something that's negative, as something that, 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 that needs to be changed so that they will become more like us. And so that question is, are you Curious, and I think the image of God helps us cultivate curiosity. Because if we know the dignity, the value, the worth of all people, then we can approach them and say, you're different. Tell me more about your world. Tell me more about your reality, and I'll tell you about mine. When we get down to it, curiosity is a form of love. Curiosity is a love of knowledge. And when you love knowledge, you want more and more and more of it, all different kinds of knowledge. And when you have a love of knowledge about people, well, then you're curious about people. And then you want to learn more about them. And then you'll bust down the barriers that in so many ways our society has erected between us. You will build bridges instead of building walls between people because you're curious. God's word says it this way in Psalm 139, verse 14. It says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What does that word fearfully mean? Other translations put it this way. They say remarkably. They say marvelously. They say awesomely. One says wonderfully complex. What if we viewed every other human being as remarkable, as marvelous, as awesome, as wonderfully complex, and we approach them with curiosity? Questions that call for truth, are you curious? Here's a second question that calls for truth. Does speaking the truth come from a place of love? Does speaking the truth come from a place of love? A lot of times in in sort of justice advocacy work, 
We talk about speaking truth to power, and absolutely, we need to do that. But along with that, and alongside that, and maybe even preceding that or foundational to that, is this idea of speaking the truth in love. So the Bible puts it this way in Ephesians 4.15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way. He said, there can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. So my work calls me to speak in very direct terms about the failures of the American church when it comes to honoring the image of God in black people and people of color. I talk about the historic compromise and complicity in racism that people of faith have often exhibited. These are simply the truths of history. These are simply the facts of our story, as unsavory, as tragic as they may be, we're still called to speak those truths, but we have to do it from a place of love. So when we advocate, when, 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 when we're promoting justice, when we're trying to honor the image of God in areas where it has been dishonored, it must come from a place of deep love and value and respect for other image bearers. Speaking the truth in love can be difficult at times. Uh, for one, a lot of times when we're called to speak the truth in love, it's to our own communities. It tends to be easier to speak the truth to somebody who's over there or to a group of people that's out of your community. We can easily say what we want about other folks, but when it's our community, it gets tricky. So, so it gets tricky on a couple of fronts. For some, the love part is tricky. You can speak truth. You can stick it to people and tell, you what, tell them what you really think, but do you have love, especially if it's in your community? Because some of us have been deeply hurt by our communities, deeply hurt by family, deeply hurt by friends, deeply hurt by the church. And so you may have some painful truths that your community needs to hear, but do you have love if you speak the truth? Now, I'm not saying stay in toxic relationships. I'm not saying stay in environments that are dangerous. What I am saying is that the people closest to us often hurt us the most. And it can be really easy to react in those moments with, with um, pure anger. And we, we speak the truth from a place of disgust and hurt rather than from a place of love. So for some of us, the challenge is to speak the truth and the love part is hard. For, other, uh, for others of us, the, the, the challenge is to speak the truth, but the hard part is the truth part. Because maybe you're in a community and you are very concerned about how they think about you and whether they accept you, and you know that to speak the truth in that community where you're trying to gain approval and acceptance is going to, in a very real way, put you at risk of rejection. We do this in the workplace all the time. Oh, I'm trying to get a promotion, I'm trying to get a title, I'm trying to get in good with the boss. I can't tell them the truth about their exploitative practices. 
whether for a customer or an employee. Or maybe it's family members and friends that have beliefs uh, uh, that are dehumanizing, that, that are dishonoring to the image of God in other people. Maybe they're believing misinformation or conspiracy theories or they just have terrible ideas about people who are outside of their small circle of, of folks they know well and, and to confront them with that, with the toxicity of their beliefs, runs the risk of you being rejected by them. Maybe it's in your own faith community. Maybe there are ways that, 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 that people who are called to a higher standard aren't living up to that. And, and, and to say that, you run the risk of being ostracized and excluded from a place where, that you desperately want to be loved and accepted and embraced. It's hard to speak the truth in love, but that's exactly what we're called to do. So that question that calls for truth, do you speak the truth in love? Third question that calls for truth. Have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost? I'm excited because now I get to tell you about one of my historical heroes, Fannie Lou Hamer. She was uh, a Born in 1917 in rural Mississippi, she had everything going against her from a human standpoint. She was poor, she was black, and she was a woman. She was picking cotton by the age of six. She had to quit formal schooling by sixth grade so she could work full time in the cotton fields when she grew up. She herself became a sharecropper, married a sharecropper. She would have likely lived and died in obscurity as so many others in her position, except on one fateful night in 1962, she went to her church and she heard a presentation about voting rights. And when they asked for volunteers to go down to the county courthouse to register to vote, she said, I raised my hand as high as it could go. And that began her public career of civil rights activism. She went all the way to the Democratic National Convention in 1964, gave this powerful testimony of what she had endured for the sake of uh, securing basic rights like the right to vote. And I'd love to tell you that Hamer's story has a happy ending. But the reality is that, that she died in 1977 of a complex of chronic illnesses, including some stemming from a, historic, a, 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 a horrific beating that she endured in a rural jail in Mississippi. She died without a lot of money. She would go around the country speaking and uh, fundraising, but she poured all of that into her philanthropic efforts, into efforts to help the poor, black and white. And she died relatively alone, though she was greatly admired. She never left the Mississippi Delta. And let me tell you, that's where I live. Not a lot of people are coming into that region. And so she was relatively alone. And you look at her life, how she gave up everything, sacrificed everything, endured so much for the sake of justice. And, and what does she have to show for it? But Fannie Lou Hamer was a person of deep faith who knew Jesus was real down to the core of her being. And she would say things like, ain't no such thing as I can hate someone and hope to see God's face. You know, that's an image of God statement. Fannie Lou Hamer is recognizing, I've got to see the image of God in all people, even and perhaps especially the ones who oppress me. 
And don't get me wrong, she was a fighter. She did not lay down and take anything, but she also recognized at a deep level that everyone bears God's image. Everyone is made in God's image. And we cannot, we cannot possibly hate other image bearers and say we're following Jesus. Doesn't mean we stand for injustice. As a matter of fact, that's precisely why you don't tolerate injustice because everyone bears the image and likeness of God. But it was a hard life. Even for activists and advocates who become leaders, what tends to happen is they become a bigger target. One of the things that we gotta be clear on, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't die, he was killed. He was assassinated, why? Because he talked about these, these radical ideas like the beloved community. And he was a target. And I just want you to know that if you engage in this work of activism and advocacy, if you are convinced that we should honor the image of God in all people and you're willing to work and fight and struggle to see that become a reality, then you need to count the cost. That's the way the Bible puts it in Luke 14, 28 to 30. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost? to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. In 2020, in the United States, but honestly it spread globally, we had this historic racial justice uprising. And a couple years later, we're like, where is it? Where's all the movement? Where's all the momentum? Was it a moment or was it a movement? I think so, I think it was. I think there's a lot of good that came out of it, but there's also a lot of people who started and didn't finish. It's because they didn't count the cost. Or when they did, they, they decided the cost was too high. And so you have to really have a conversation with yourself and ask this question that calls for truth. Have you counted the cost? What are you willing to sacrifice? for the sake of justice? What are you willing to give up for the sake of honoring the image of God in all people? Would you not take the promotion? Would you not accept the job? Would you go against your family if they are doing things that are dishonoring to the image of God in people? Would you speak the truth even if it risks uh, your platform and the approval of people who you want to like you and respect you? Let me just tell you, this work of justice, it's not glamorous. <laughs> it's not full of earthly glory. It's, it's, it's hard work, but it's worthy work, but it's serious work too. You have to ask the question that calls for truth. Have you counted the cost? At the beginning, I said um, that I would ask three questions and a bonus. Here's the bonus question. It actually goes back to the first question that we started with in Genesis chapter three. The last question that calls for truth is, where are you? Where are you? We know God asked it of Adam and Eve, now ask it of yourself. And ask it in different dimensions. Answer the question, where are you in terms of your relationship with yourself? 
I, I just think we often skip over this. Remember when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You probably know it. It says, love God and love your neighbor. But there's a, another part, as yourself. So where are you in relation to yourself? Are you cultivating curiosity about yourself? Meaning, when, when, when you're looking at your life, do you ask more questions? Or do you accuse yourself? Do you convict yourself? Do you judge yourself? Or do you approach yourself with a sense of wonder and know maybe things aren't perfect and know maybe you didn't do that thing right, but do you ask, well, why was that? How can I be different? Or do you come with a spirit of judgment and condemnation towards yourself? Because that's not how Christ views you. Ask yourself, where are you in relation to the world? This isn't just about introspection. It's about looking out and observing and seeing the signs of the times. If we are indeed living in the civil rights movement of our day, then where are you in the movement? Think ahead. What do you want your legacy to be? When others ask you years down the road that where were you in these times of tremendous upheaval, what will you say? I was doom scrolling. I reposted something. I made my profile picture just all black for a day. I mean, listen, I'm on social media all the time. I don't think it's bad. But the question is, is that the limit? Is that the ceiling for your involvement? Or have you found a cause that's greater than yourself? Have you found something that you can commit to that goes beyond yourself? I'll tell you a quick story. My first career was as a teacher. I was a sixth grade science and social studies teacher. I um, was about to graduate from the University of Notre Dame, go Irish, and I was an American studies major. And all my friends, they were getting jobs as accountants, as engineers, they were going to law school, and I'm looking at my major like, well, <laughs> um, I, I, this isn't gonna be attractive to most employers, so, so, so what do I have going for me? I may not have marketable job skills, but I do have an education, so maybe I can be an educator, and so I became a teacher in the Delta, but I did it for all the wrong reasons. When I got into it, it was very self-serving. I was interested in becoming a better speaker, a better leader. I was interested in padding my resume with this, you know, great, you know, uh, uh, philanthropic giving, you know, kind of opportunity that would look good to future. It was a stepping stone to something else. Thankfully, very quickly, my students let me know, uh, if you're not here for the right reasons, you're not gonna make it for very long. And I'm a slow learner, so it took me a while to catch on that, that, that the goal of teaching is, is, is the students, the center of teaching is the students. And once I got outside of myself, and I'm not knocking uh, uh, being strategic in your career, I'm not knocking uh, doing things that are gonna enhance your skills, but what I am saying is that until you become committed to a cause that's bigger than that, a cause that's outside of yourself, you're gonna have a very kind of, I think, sober answer to the question, where are you in relation to the world? It's gonna be hard to get involved in the causes that are most important right now. And lastly, most importantly, where are you in relation to Jesus? You know, God's not afraid of questions. God will take your questions and if you go to God and you say, where are you, God? 
Where are you in the midst of the dishonoring of your image bearers? Where are you in the midst of injustice and oppression? Where are you in the midst of all that has gone wrong and is going wrong in the world? God, where are you? And God answers, where are you? He doesn't give a place. He gives a person whose name is Jesus. That beautiful name, Jesus, and, 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 and that other name, Emmanuel, for Jesus, which means God with us. As we look at the world around us, as we look at ourselves, as we ask ourselves the question, where are you? God answers, I'm in the face of Jesus. You want to know what I look like? You want to know my perfect image and my perfect likeness? Look to Jesus. You want to know how to live in the midst of a world that has systematically dishonored the image of God in all kinds of people? Look to the life of Jesus. You want to know how to be curious about other people? You want to know how to speak the truth in love? Look to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I know you want to make an impact in the world. I know you want to make a difference in the world. And I know it seems so big and, and, and what can one person do? But it really gets down to this fine-grained, simple question that all of us need to ask. Where are you in relation to Jesus? If you want to see the very image of God, look into the eyes of Jesus. And then you know what? The rest gets really simple. All you have to do is follow wherever he leads. That's going to occupy you for a lifetime. How do we redeem the image of God? How do we honor the image of God in all people? It's look to the image of God in bodily form in Jesus. Now seems like a good time to pray. Would you join me? Oh, holy God, who are we that you would be mindful of us? I mean, we're, we're little specks in the creation in comparison to you, and yet, yet you give us such honor. You give us such dignity, God. We implore that you would help us see ourselves the way you see us, as the crown of your creation, as people who are awesome and marvelous. And we pray that you would help us see other people the same way and where people are, are being dishonored and marginalized. Would you enlist us in the struggle to make wrong things right? But God, we don't want to do it alone. We can only do it if you are with us. And we know you are. And I'm speaking to anyone who's listening to this message. And you want to see the face of Jesus. You can do that today. Just give a little sign, just raise your hand right where you are, no matter where you are. Look into the eyes of Jesus and follow wherever he goes. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.